Good morning. Welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today we encounter Jesus' final letter as he writes to the church in the city of Laodicea. The historical and cultural situation of Laodicea is very similar to what the church faces in our world today. And the single greatest factor for health of a church is how much or how little they are affected and really infected by the surrounding cultural pressures and values. Suffice to say that the church in Laodicea has fallen into the trap of believing that they were rich when in fact they were bankrupt. Thanks for joining us on this journey as we seek to avoid similar traps that have been set for the church today. friend who uh, traps coyotes and small animals for furs. He, uh, he has set a few traps over on my, uh, my family's property. And uh, there is, in addition to those animals that are uh, worth trapping and hunting, there is this little rodent that got into the shed. And by little, I mean a woodchuck. I don't know if you've ever encountered one of these critters, but he is making havoc all over the place. And so we are setting a little trap for that little guy as well. Uh, here's the thing about a trap. If, um, if you're not looking for it, what will it do? It'll get you. That's, that is exactly the design of a trap. And for any critter that's out there, they're so easily distracted by something they think is more important. They don't see the trap and it becomes for them their downfall. Uh, my, my warning to us this morning, and as we are going to look into the letter that Jesus writes to our final church, is that there are traps set for you. There are traps in this world that have been set for the church, and they are unique to your area that you live in, even the time period you, that you live in. Uh, the 21st century in America has a whole set of traps that are set to cause it such that your ministry, your ability to serve and represent God in this world will be hindered, you will be stuck, and you will become ineffective. And that will happen to you many times without even recognizing it, for we have, as an American church, we've moved our eyes off of Jesus Christ in so many ways. And becoming distracted by other things, we've gotten stuck in a trap. I don't know if you saw recently this week came out by Pew Research Institution that the rate of Christians, uh, population of Christians has dropped in our country by somewhere, give or take, 12 to 14 percent. That is staggering that that there are far more than 10 percent less individuals in our world today that would recognize and claim the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord. Um, they said in this research that if trends continue, uh, Christians will be in a minority position in America by the year 2035. I've seen the same trend happen because what happens in our world where we are afraid to offend, and I hope you know that's, that is the God of this age, that everyone's afraid of offense, that what we try to do is we just take the bar of whatever is required and we just lower it so that we won't offend anybody. Can you imagine if Jesus did that with the disciples? If he just was, a, what if Jesus was afraid that someone might be offended? In fact, we have throughout the gospel, time after time, where the, where the disciples go to Jesus and they'll say, do you know when you called those guys hypocrites, it offended them? What is Jesus not to do? Not tell the truth? What about you? What about the church? What are we not to do? Not tell the truth? 
When I worked as a vice principal at a Christian school, we saw that the surrounding schools had the same problem we did in which the children did not want to do their work. Sounds like school, doesn't it? Yes, that kids don't want to do their work. And um, their grades reflected that. So the answer for so many administrations were, well, you know what we ought to do? We ought to just take the bar, the requirement, and just lower it for them. And do you know what that did for their grades? It didn't make them any better. In fact, now they're just challenged less. And so they give less. And I fear that this is what has happened in our church today. Hear me very clearly when I tell you following Jesus Christ has a personal cost for you. And as much as a church believes or rejects that truth, they will stand or fall with the world around them. For the world will be judged by God. How much do you and I, how much therefore does our church represent, look like, smell like, taste like the world? Or have we been, what the word holy means, means being set apart. Have we been set apart? Hear me again, there are traps that are set. And the danger of our world is that so many churches have lowered the bar that they no longer have a standard that recognizes Jesus. There are, in fact, churches meeting today where the name of Jesus won't be mentioned. The name of Jesus is all we have. And if that's offensive to the world, I trust that you and I are prepared to suffer for that. The church in Laodicea was not. The church in Laodicea was one that struggled with a trap that they fell into where they had become blind to this danger. I've entitled this message, Blindness, Ineffectiveness, and Offensiveness. And as uh, this final church in these seven letters is mentioned, it is the one where there is no positive commendation by Jesus. If you, if you can recall, as we've been through each of these, each of these letters, Jesus says with the title, this is who I am. I know your deeds. This is what you're doing good. No such word for Laodicea. No such commendation to say, here is what you have going on, right? This is how I'm proud of you. Keep after it. You won't find that here in this letter. There has been for this church an ineffectiveness that has for them changed them into another meeting place where you cannot tell the difference between the church and the world. The standards that the world wants to hold and lower down, guess what the church has done? They've brought those right in kind. And now Jesus has nothing positive to say to this church. Uh, one of the things that I'm going to seek to do as we work through this is we're going to read through it. And uh, what I'm going to attempt to do is try to tie in the themes that we find throughout the New Testament, throughout the scriptures, and to see how they apply to the principles that we can learn from the church of Laodicea. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 3. And in preparation, as you're turning there, let's learn a little bit of the background of this, our final city. Um, First thing to know in Laodicea, they were wealthy. Uh, Laodicea was the place where you would go if you were a merchant. In fact, the city was founded not because of any geographical oddity. It wasn't on the shore of any ocean. It wasn't on the foot of any mountain. It was, in fact, crossroads such that the greatest industry that they had was banking. Uh, In fact, in Laodicea, uh, they were so wealthy, you have the first um, uh, of antiquity of millionaires, people who had so much money 
they could donate to get a building named after them. And they weren't royalty, which tended to be how things worked in the ancient world. You had to be a, a ruler or a king to have that kind of money, but not in Laodicea. This would be the place where you have earned and, and, and now you're going into retirement there because they've got everything you need in Laodicea. Extremely wealthy. Uh, the gold that they would have there is in abundance. In, set, in uh, 60 AD, there was in fact a earthquake that devastated the city. And while the Roman government wanted to care for all of the towns that were affected by the earthquake by giving them tax breaks and by giving them even a substantial amount of money to be used for rebuilding, Laodicea said, we're good. We, we don't even need your money. And by their own pockets, by their own ability, they rebuilt the city. Uh, the Roman historian Tacitus actually gives reference to this. Uh, that Laodicea, when the, when the monies were being made available, said, uh, we, we don't even need it. They, that's how wealthy they were in Laodicea. Uh, the second thing that you might, uh, that is important for us to understand are some of the notable features for uh, what Laodicea produced. Uh, they had very uh, good grazing lands, and so uh, the farmers there had a flock of sheep that was unique from many other places in that they selectively bred them to produce black wool. They were, you've heard the term black sheep? They were all black sheep. All, all the sheep they had there was this jet blackness. And because of that, Laodicea was known for producing these textiles that had this silky, rich blackness to them that you couldn't find anywhere else. Uh, in addition to this, they had a, a particular interest in medicine. They had a school of medicine here in the city. Uh, and the predominant export for them was an eye salve. So if you had trouble with your eyes and you needed to, to find some relief, uh, they had a particular salve there made out of what they called a Phrygian powder. And if you wanted to go find it, they had the corner market on this. So the eye salve and the, the medical facility uh, that they had here, uh, the medical school even for training, was notable in Laodicea. And then finally, the last aspect of the city that is um, pertinent upon our study is that they did not have a good water supply. And so here you can see in this picture the ruins of an ancient aqueduct uh, that had to make its way from uh, Hierapolis. It was a city that was some uh, uh, six miles uh, down, down the road where they, where they actually did have some volcanic activity at Hierapolis so that they produced hot springs. Um, you, you may even know today that places like this are sometimes traveled to by tourists for their healing uh, capacities. Uh, well, what they did is they produced an aqueduct that would carry the water all the way down these many miles. Uh, and then eventually coming here to Laodicea, the problem being that this water was a bit putrid already when it was being produced. And after that long journey, having started out hot, it cooled down to the point where it was almost undrinkable. Uh, but that was the problem there in Laodicea, that they did not have a good water supply. The nearest river would dry up in the summers. And so their answer to this uh, was trying to provide for themselves by bringing in this aqueduct. Uh, it was a church here that Jesus addresses in the city where there, again, is no positive message. Because if you were to go here to Laodicea, here's what they would say. We've got plenty of gold. We've got plenty of designer clothes and we've got our own medical care. So we do, thank you very much, but we don't need any help. We've got this on our own. That would be the message that you would hear from Laodicea. 
I wonder if that sounds familiar to us living in America. I wonder if you can connect the dots for how much we need. Jesus, in talking with the disciples, shares a truth that is offensive. He says it's so hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. Because what does a rich man need? Don't need anything. And Laodiceans didn't need anything. Here's the trap. Is that that mindset of the culture and of the environment did not, say, did not stay separate from the church. The church is called to be those who are out of the world. Not that we have no investment to reach out to them, but we are no longer identified as those who carry the same values of the world. But not so in Laodicea. The church lost its identity. In fact, it took Jesus and kicked him out. You wouldn't find Jesus in the church of Laodicea. He was outside in the parking lot somewhere. But he wasn't welcome in the church because that word of saying, I don't need anything, is the most offensive thing to God. Do you understand how this is the unraveling of the gospel? Don't let me lose you now. The gospel is very simply this. You are a what? Say it again aloud. You are a sinner. And the wages of sin are? That's right. Because you sin, death is what you deserve. But there is one who came in your place without sin, and yet he died such that you can have his life. That's the simplicity of the gospel. And it all depends on your initiation by saying, I actually need help. I actually can't do this on my own. Now, for a rich man, what does he have? Any needs? All of his needs are met. Let me just dig into my checkbook here, and and we'll have this taken care of. And what a dangerous thing. Jesus says this, offensive to them. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that is the trap that has been set in Laodicea. So with all of that background in mind, uh, I invite you to follow along with me as we read through the passage and work through some observations. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched. Pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. White clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him 
and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, let me see if I can uh, unpack a few observations here and then we'll look into some uh, concluding principles. The first is Jesus' introduction of himself. I want you to notice there's three ways he introduces himself. First, he is called the, did you see what it is? Amen. Amen is a word here that simply means this is true. It, it, it literally means so be it. Whatever, whatever is said regarding the amen is true. And I love it. It's, it's true whether you like it or not. It's true. And sometimes we feel that way. Uh, sometimes I think uh, being a doctor is a, is a tough job because sometimes you've got to give bad, bad news to people. But what are you going to do? Sugarcoat it? This is true. This is, this is what you got. This is what you're facing. That person who delivers that kind of message is called the amen. Uh, additionally, we see in the very same uh, heart of this that Jesus is the faithful and the true witness. And that needs to be contrasted with people who are, what's the opposite of faithful? Unfaithful. And what's the opposite of true? False. And so surrounding Laodicea, there are and, and much like the churches today, people who are unfaithful and false witnesses, Jesus says, I am the faithful and the true witness. If you're going to look to find truth anywhere, you must look to my words. And then the third and final way he introduces himself is to say, I am the ruler of God's creation, which is a unique title that we don't find through the other letters. However, we do find it in one of our New Testament letters. There was uh, at this time... Um, as I have already been sharing with you, an influence of the culture upon the f- beliefs of the church. And so as I uh, bring the map up here again so you can see where we've been on this journey, um, uh, John here, writing from the island, uh, Isle of Patmos here, writes first to Ephesus and then Smyrna and Pergamum. We moved over to Thyatira, down to Sardis, Philadelphia. And now we're at this final, uh, this final church uh, on this route here, And right near Laodicea, again, to bring the water in was the city of Hierapolis. That was only a couple miles away. But there was another city, like a neighboring, kind of like a twin city. Uh, It was the city of Colossae. Uh, The letter to the Colossians is one that contains this same emphasis. And here's why. There was a teaching that was going on in, in Colossae that Jesus really isn't the ruler Lord He's kind of like a lot of the other spirit beings that we're familiar with. There was a false teaching that was a demotion of Jesus. They didn't see him as Lord. They didn't see him as creator. And so when Paul writes to the church in in, uh, Colossae, he actually includes at the very end of the letter, and you can go back there and find this in chapter 4, he says, after this letter is read here, I want you to send it to Laodicea. They need to read it too. And you, in turn, you need to get the letter I wrote to them and you need to read it here because there was such an interaction between these close cities that they struggled with the same problems. Jesus says, I am the amen. I'm the faithful and true witness. I am the ruler of God's creation. Now, what do you think your and my response should be before the one who is the ruler of God's creation? Should we leave him in the parking lot? No, we, we bend the knee, we bow our head before this, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And so as Paul writes to the church in 
Colossae, he says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Prototokos is the word here for firstborn. It doesn't mean like your, your first kid. You know how you all had a, your first kid that was born, right? That's, that's slightly different than this. Uh, this. This is representative of the firstborn's position before the parents, meaning he's in the position of authority, preeminence. That's what it means to be the firstborn, and that's how the word is used here. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have, say it with me, supremacy. That's who Jesus is. And so this is the message that needs to be given here, not only in Colossae, it also needs to be heard in Laodicea. Do you think it needs to be heard today? I wonder what difference it would make in your life if you knew that God sees your deeds as the ruler of creation, the one who is holy, 100% love, a holy, 100% justice. He sees your deeds. He is the ruler of God's creation. That's, that's how it begins here. Um, the next section here, if you look again in the passage into verse 15, right behind, I know your deeds, is not a positive commendation, as I've already mentioned. Instead, it's an indictment that you are neither cold nor hot. And then he says, I wish you were either one or the other. Um, there, I, I want to clear something up because some people read this and they, they interpret it in a sense that is, Making more sense of how we use that language today. Have you ever heard somebody say, boy, they're just on fire for the Lord. Have you heard that, right? Or, or, or they're just, their heart is so cold to God, right? Have you heard those temperature type metaphors, right? Um, that's a type of language that isn't particularly used in the New Testament. But we use that today quite frequently. And so when people encounter this passage, rather than interpret it the way that Jesus would have meant it to be understood contextually, they think of it how we think today, and they think Jesus says, I wish you would be either spiritually hot or that you would be just just a good old sinner or, or something like cold. I, that's not the correct interpretation. That's not what this is referring to. Uh, when Jesus says that you're neither hot nor cold, what he means here is reference to the functionality of water. He's going to go on to say, if you look just briefly, what are they in verse 16? They're not hot or cold. What are they? Lukewarm. Blah. Now, I've got this little tea kettle in my office, and every now and then I'll seep a little um, blueberry tea is my favorite. I don't know if you guys try You need to try blueberry tea. But do you know what's the worst thing? Lukewarm blueberry tea. It's nasty. And every now and then, if I let that cup sit too long, and you know when you're not paying attention, and you just do one of those, those last dregs, right? And you get that little, you know what I mean? That little like, that's what lukewarm will do to you. Uh, the, the nature of something that's lukewarm is having carried on the identity of its environment. And that's exactly what I believe Jesus means here. You see, in Hierapolis, the city that was six miles away, you had what kind of water from the hot springs? You, you had hot water that was coming in from that city. You also, over in Colossae, you had nice cold springs. And there ain't nothing better on a hot day than a Tall, just sweaty, 
cold glass of water, right? You know the kind? So hot water serves a purpose. Cold water serves a purpose. But you know what kind of water you want to vomit? Lukewarm water. Why? What happened to the lukewarm water? Let's start with the hot. It started out hot, and then what happened to make it lukewarm? The environment stole the heat away, and so it cooled down. Let's take the cold water, that ice-cold cup of water, and you let it sit on the picnic table too long. What happened to it? The environment around it changed its identity to warm it up so that now you can't tell the difference between the surrounding environment and that which should have been special, that which should have been effective. Uh, Jesus says that, verse 16, uh, because you were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, speaking here in reference to the functionality. I, I want to make sure I clear this up for you. Hot or cold is not in reference to spiritual temperature. Is everybody with me on this? That's not, it's, it's not that you're spiritually hot or you're just, a, that's not what he means here. It's in reference to the emptiness of their deeds. In Laodicea, they were half-hearted. Their works were ineffective. You couldn't even tell they were a church. They looked so much like the world. Uh, the other day I was uh, running down a trail on my parents' property and um, there's, a, there's a spot that's particularly swampy. And if anyone's ever been riding an ATV, do you ever get in a rut? Do you guys know what that's like? Getting, in, getting into a rut where, it's, where it's the, the wheel's just stuck on one side? You don't even have to steer anymore. You, you, could, you could take your hands off the wheel and do you know what it'll do? It'll stay right where? It'll stay right in the rut. Even if that rut is leading to a swamp, it will stay right there. The environment around you is setting a trap to affect your effectiveness. And it's going to take work to get out of that. In fact, if you don't put any work to the wheel, where will you end up? Right where the rut carries you. The environment will carry you right where it wants you to go. This is what's happening in Laodicea. Uh, Lukewarm here is that helpful term to get us to see that they lost their distinctiveness. The church was no longer set apart. The church was no longer holy. They didn't make an impression on their environment. In fact, they made no impact. The commentary from Word Biblical uh, gives it this way. It says, The phrase, neither cold nor hot, can be taken to indicate a vacillation. That's a word that means, I just go whichever way the wind blows. If if the culture's leaning me this way, what way do I go? This way. If it blows this way, I go this way. This vacillation means being pulled one way or the other. Um, Epictetus criticizes the person who can't decide in a particular way of living. Even Jesus records, or Matthew records Jesus' words. Here's a passage we don't hear too many often. Matthew 12, Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is what? You're against Jesus. If you're not seeking to get out of the rut, to be controlled by your environment, if you're not with Jesus, it's like you're against Jesus. I I, I cannot emphasize this enough to you. The danger of the trap that is set for churches today to lose your identity because you look so much like the world. Uh, The Expositor's Bible Commentary gives it this way. The spirit of the surrounding culture has crept into the congregation and has paralyzed their spiritual life. Uh, Look with me again in verse 16. You're neither hot nor cold. What's Jesus going to do? 
I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Uh, the, the Greek word here is not a word for spit. Emio, it means, it means to vomit. That's what the word means. So do me a favor, cross the word spit in your Bible. Write the word vomit because you're going to lose Jesus' intention on this. When he says vomit, uh, we, we use this saying all the time, right? Um, if you don't like what someone's doing, if it's really ugly, sometimes we use a phrase, you're, ju- you're making me sick. You're making me sick. You've heard that phrase before, right? That's exactly what Jesus intends you to understand. The church at this point in Laodicea, it's making Jesus sick. Like, I, I, I want to I throw you, I want to throw up when I see what you guys are like. You, you don't taste distinct to me. You, you taste just like the world tastes. It makes me sick. You guys with me on this? All right. Let's move, it, let's move ahead a little bit here. Uh, the next problem, let, let, me, let me see if I identify the problem. Verse 17, what is it they say? I am rich. I want you to see that right here at the very beginning, uh, one of the greatest problems that they have is money. In Laodicea and into the church, they put their assurance in their financial standing. I want to share with you again Jesus' words. He says, in reference to the young man, this is a rich guy, says, what do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of God? Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, love your neighbor as yourself, honor and obey your parents. He says, all these I have kept. What still do I lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm not making this up. Look at the text. The problem in Laodicea, the reason why they didn't look like the world is because they cared more about money than Jesus. I'm rich, they said. Uh, The second problem, which I think, and I've already alluded to this, is their self-sufficiency. Look what he says next in verse 17. I'm rich. I've, I've acquired wealth and do not need, what's it say? I don't need a thing. There is nothing more dangerous for a church. Now, you go to uh, Kadapa, India, with Pastor Sri, they have a need there. But there are so many churches you can go to, even, even locally, we, we have all of our needs met. Do you know one of the most dangerous things is a big bank account in a church? That's one of the most dangerous things. I, imagine if the church drained its bank account to give its money away. What would, we, what would we have to do to trust God? To provide. But as long as there's cash in the bank. Now, Bonnie, don't get nervous here. I'm not, I'm not saying we, you know, we be smart, be smart with our money as well. But just be careful for the trap. There is a trap that is set because if you put your confidence in money, you will become what you think is self-sufficient. I don't need a thing. Um, I, want, I want us to very quickly, and by very quickly, I mean this is going to take a while. <laughs> I want you to turn in your Bible to the book of Genesis, chapter 19. And I want you uh, to see with me the nature of a culture and then to evaluate what the sin that was going on there was. Genesis 19. 
Page 23. You're there. Here we go. Verse 1. Uh, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night. Then go on your way in the morning. What's Lot trying to do with these guys? Get them out of there. Get them to leave. No, they answered. We'll spend the night in the square. Now, if you know the story, you know how dangerous that is going to be. Let's see what happens. Verse 3. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast. And they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all of the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called out to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them, shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you that you can do with them. Uh, do what you like with them. Which, by the way, should strike us all as being incredibly immoral, but highlights for us the grave sexual immorality going on here. I don't know if you caught this, right? Men wanting to have sex with men here before Lot's eyes can be remedied by simply producing women. Look at the depravity that's going on in Sodom. Verse 8, continuing. Let me bring them out to you. You can do what you like with them, but don't do anything with these men for they've come under the protection of my roof. Look at the response. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien. So now they're going to make fun a lot, right? And now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. All right. That's a nice story for church, right? My goodness. Uh, in, the, in Ezekiel chapter 16, we have the passage from the prophet. He says, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. How would you fill in the blank, do you suppose? What, what do you think would follow a sentence like that? If, if, if Ezekiel is going to list the sins of Sodom, I imagine you will be surprised by the answer because this was the sin. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. Does that not sound like Laodicea? We don't need a thing. We got plenty of gold. So much that we're overfed. And what does Jesus say about their deeds? Do you remember in the passage? Back in Revelation chapter 3? Look, in, look at the situation going on in Sodom. They didn't help the poor and the needy. The sin is one of self-confidence because they placed their hope in wealth and riches. I, I want to I share with you um, this beautiful passage from Pastor James James says this in chapter 1. He says, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride for their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they'll pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls. Its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Look, the... The problem that you would have seen in Sodom was only symptomatic of a greater issue that was going on. Self-sufficiency, I need nothing, I got this on my own. 
It will lead to a, a depravity of the culture. Now, what do you think will happen to the church? Do you think the culture is going to affect the church? Yes or no? Yes. Yeah. I think that we see the same thing happening in Laodicea. We see the same thing happening today. Uh, very, very briefly now, let's move, move on from this. Uh, the reality of their situation shows up here in verse 18. Or I'm sorry, at the end of, end of 17. Look at me at the end of 17. You don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, poor blind, and naked. Uh, the first two um, descriptors there, wretched and pitiful, should probably be taken as a single identifying feature. You don't have it all together. You're a mess, Jesus says. And then the last three all speak to the characteristic of what's going on in the culture. Look, look with me. Poor. But what did they think they were? They thought they were rich. Um, blind. Do you remember what they produced? At the medical school? The ISAF, right? But they're blind, actually. And they are, lastly, naked. But do you remember what they produced from those sheep? Oh, that beautiful jet black wool, right? Jesus knows their idolatry. Jesus knows what they put higher than him. And so he says, you think you got it together. You guys are a mess. In fact... You're not rich, you're poor. You can't see with your eyes, Sav. You're blind. And you think you're strutting around in your beautiful woolen cloth. Yeah, before me, you're as shameful as someone walking naked. And so that's the reality of their situation. He, in fact, uh, is going to reference these three areas again in verse 18. Look what he says. Instead, I counsel you to buy, look what it is. Gold refined in the fire. So you think you're rich yourselves? Well, get gold from me instead. Then you will be rich. And then he says, uh, put on white clothes to wear. And we've seen white as a theme that represents both victory and purity throughout Revelation, right? So get rid of that black outfit you have and put white on. And then uh, the lastly here in verse 18, um, that you get salve from me for your eyes so that you can see. Okay, uh, last thing I got, and then we'll, we'll, we'll quickly move through these uh, principles. Uh, Jesus is where? In verse 20. If you were to go visit the church in Laodicea, where's Jesus? Is he in their fellowship? Is he worshipped as the ruler of God's creation? Where, where is he? You all left Jesus outside. Jesus in Laodicea is left doing what? Any, any room? You guys, you, what's the reply from the Laodiceans? I need a thing. Do you, do you ever have someone come to your door trying to sell you something? You ever have one of those guys? I, I don't know if you ever like, shh, 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 maybe they'll go away. We don't. Meow, meow. Right? Nobody home. Yeah. Uh, that's Laodicea. Jesus is left outside because he knows what they need. And they're like, well, we're fine. Who's that guy out there? Well, we don't need any. Go sell what you want somewhere else. We're fine here. Uh, Jesus is left outside, but yet he stands at the door and he knocks. Here's a couple principles. Let's work through these quickly. Number one, failure to take a stand can lead to rejection by God. Failure to take a stand because in Laodicea they weren't taking a stand. They look just like their culture. And because of that, Jesus was going to what? Vomit them. Rejection by God because you're not my people. You don't, you don't look like me. You don't smell like me. You don't taste like me. You taste like the world tastes. 
Um, I want you to know that taking a stand can be costly. I've already told you once, right? Following Jesus will have a personal cost for you. Are you ready? Think of the other churches. Philadelphia, they did it. Smyrna, they did it. And they were applauded for suffering for the name. You have not denied my name. But Laodicea, uh, whose name again? No, we're, we're good here. And they're not looking like God's people. They look just like the world looks with the same values the world looks. And if you don't take a stand, you as well might be rejected by God. And it's costly. This is Jesus' words in Matthew or Mark 8. He says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. I remember, I think it was fourth grade, there was a girl in our class who had those thick Coke bottle glasses. You remember the kind? And what do you think we called her? You knew, yeah, that's right. Four eyes is what you called her. She also had a bit of an overbite. And I, I remember the first time I encountered the kids teasing her. And it was like, it was like an unwinnable battle for her. She couldn't, there's nothing she, she could do. She wasn't as witty as they were. She wasn't uh, malicious in her heart to tease back. But kids can be so mean. Just piling on four eyes, four eyes. We'll call her name Karen for the sake of anonymity. Um, I remember out there against the fence thinking someone needs to stand up for her. And I said, all right. I, I kind of stood between her and the kids. And I said, all right, you guys, that's enough. Leave, leave Karen alone. And the kids instantly said, Ryan loves Karen. Ryan loves Karen. <laughs> and then I started to feel a little, no, no. And, and, and I, got, I got pigeonholed right there with her. And I was never one of the really cool kids, but I could feel that whatever cred I had with my classmates was slipping away. And it wasn't probably but a week or so later. I remember now we're up in the math room and I could see it so clearly that she was, the class was over, the teacher was distracted, and those kids started bullying her once more. And so did I. And I didn't want to take a stand. I want you to know how that moment, I can still see it and how that affected me. Listen to Jesus' words here in Matthew 5. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You may have a cost to pay to take a stand For Jesus in this world today. But that's exactly what he has called you to be. You are to be identified different than this world. Not carrying their values. What is it that you're going to take a stand for then? Secondly. Wealth and prosperity. Can lead to spiritual blindness. I was careful to put the word can lead. And not will lead. Because if you see the trap. What are you going to do? You're going to avoid it, right? And hear me very loud and clear. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Timothy as well. Those who want to get rich fall into a trap. Pain themselves with many griefs. So if you know the trap is there, you can avoid this. But so many people miss it. And wealth and prosperity instead, they just lead to a blindness. You will think you're standing well. And this affects entire churches. You'll think, we're standing well. Because we got money in the bank. When all the while your neighbor is suffering. When all the while people are going hungry and cold. Oh, but we're nice and warm here. And you're blind 
Uh, There's a story that Jesus tells, Luke 12, check this out with me. He says, and he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I got no place to store my crops. Then he said this, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Do you remember the sin of Sodom? Arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. Remember Laodicea? I know your deeds. You're not hot or cold. You're you're lukewarm. Look what happened. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Wealth and prosperity They can lead to spiritual blindness. There's your trap to watch out for. Number three, self-sufficiency is a rejection of God. Nobody receives the free gift of salvation by saying, I got everything I need, like the Laodiceans. What, what, What do you call a person? What do you call a person when the gift of salvation is offered and they say, no, thank you? What are they called? A, a believer or an unbeliever? A Christian or a non-Christian? Yeah, somebody who says, I don't need this. You, there's the door. You stay on that side. We're all set here. Self-sufficiency is a rejection of God. And you may think that you're standing well. You may think that you've got some good in you. This is what Isaiah says. All of us have become like the one who's unclean. And all our righteous acts are filthy rags. Without the righteousness of Christ, guess what you looked like before God? Filthy rags. Without the righteousness of Christ that causes you to look different than the world, what do you taste like to him? Hot or cold? Lukewarm. All right, I'm going to move a little quicker through the rest of these. Number four, true riches. They come only from faith in God. If you look back in verse 18, this is where he says, I want you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. Buy from me white clothes to wear so that you can cover your nakedness. Buy from me Salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. True riches, they come from faith in God only. Uh, Fifthly, the Lord disciplines those he loves. Look with me back in verse 19. You cannot miss this one. And I I got a verse up here for us to look at it because don't miss this one. Those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. I'm floored by the mercy of God. Even as he is kicked out of the church, what does he continue to do? To discipline them. Why? Because what does God do with sinners? He loves them. He's 100% love. He wants none of his justice to be poured out because it's already been paid here. But if you reject this, we got to be careful knowing that uh, the Lord disciplines those he loves. Um, Hebrews 12. I'll let you read it on your own. Read. Are you going to read Hebrews 12? Okay. Number six, to endure means to rule with Jesus. To endure means to rule with Jesus. Verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down on my father's throne. Um, The passage I put on the sermon notes here, if we endure, we'll also reign with him. Do you see the rest of that verse on your sermon notes though? But if we disown him, he'll also disown us. Uh, The promise is given to you. Make sure that we listen to it. All right, here's what I have to say to you on this. Are you willing to stand for Jesus, even if it costs you earthly riches? Laodicea was not taking a stand. 
They were focused on their riches. The trap was set, sprung on them, and now they're stuck and ineffective. I want, uh, pull out your sermon notes, would you please? Um, I actually would love it if I could get you to answer. I got two lines down here, the next two questions. Number one, name one area where you are currently taking a stand for Jesus. My great hope is all of you have something to write in the blank there. Name one area in your life where you are taking a stand for Jesus. And then secondly, to challenge you, name one area where you are currently tempted to remain lukewarm. It shouldn't take you long to think this through. Do us no good to study God's word and not apply it to our lives. And not to really give evaluation to say, no, this is where I'm willing to receive persecution. This is where I'm willing to lose riches for. I'm willing to take a stand with Jesus. I'm not ashamed of him before this generation. I'm called to look different. But then there's this one area where it's really hard for me to take a stand still. That's where I need God's help in my life. I want to conclude here with this last question. Can you identify the traps that are set for our church? And I'm going to carry this theme into next week. So you might think of this as a part one and a part two, because every one of these letters that we've studied, I have sought to apply to each of us, right? But who are they written to? They're written to the church. This means that there are traps that aren't just set for you individually. There are traps that have been set for the church as a whole. And this is where I want to call us to wisdom. Laodicea, they left Jesus outside. May it never be said of us that he only stands at the door and knocks. Will you please bow and pray with me this morning?